Well, hello, John. It's another episode of Flight Safety Detectives, and I get to see you. And of course, I get to see Todd, our friend of the show. So it's always good to see both of your smiling faces, but not right now. <laughs> it's been a long road trip. I uh, was down in the Bahamas for several days working an accident, passed through uh, Denver to get some new clothes, only to keep going to Ketchikan, Alaska and um, was up there for about five and a half days doing some work on an accident and uh, doing a little bit of flying as well. And it was funny because the temperature up there was warmer than it was in Denver when I finally made it home, which is just crazy. So if somebody says there isn't global warming, when it gets to be 85 degrees in Ketchikan, Alaska and 100 and whatever in Oregon, you know there's global warming. So how are you guys doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I did a little bit of traveling myself, but not too far. But the uh, temperatures here in New England have been unusually high as well. In fact, uh, a couple of days ago, I was coming back from upstate New York. And as I drove through Springfield, the temperature reached 101. Really? Wow. And, and that is unheard of out in the Berkshires in western part of Massachusetts. So it's... Uh, you're right. There is some strange weather going on. In fact, Especially when you get all that humidity attached to all of that. Yes, that which is typical New England. Yeah. And uh, I was just looking at the weather map this morning because we got a, an alert for extreme weather here in uh, Middlesex County, Massachusetts. And the entire western part of Canada is red. And Alaska, all the way down to where Todd is in, in Seattle, Washington. It's just crazy. It's like the world has turned in the, uh, the, we're in the Tropic of Cancer right now. Yeah. And Todd, I know that up in the Seattle area, it was well over 100 as well. It was uh, over 100 three days in a row. And the last two days were the two highest temperatures ever recorded in Seattle. So yeah, it was a little bit warm here. I spent a lot of time in the basement. <laughs> <laughs> there is a joke there, Todd. I'm not going there. I am not going there. So, <laughs> yeah, Alaska, I mean, Seattle never believed in air conditioning. But I guess they're going to change that pretty quick. Well, hey, I'm a believer now. <laughs> yes. Wow. Well, well we got, go uh, ahead, John. I, well, Greg, just to let, remind everybody that this show is being brought to you by both PAMA, the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association. And for all our folks out there that want to become involved with PAMA, it's PAMA.org. Give them, dial them up. And if you're a student, and I know that we get a fair number of students listening to this program, if you're a student in school, regardless of you being a pilot or, or a mechanic, you can sign up for a free membership of, on PAMA. Yeah. And, and this show is also brought to you by our friends at Avemco. Avemco Insurance has been insuring general aviation airplanes since 1961. So they, they are out there. They know what they're doing. They know what the needs are. And they also insure flight instructors and also uh, pilots that are flying rental airplanes. And I know that when I flew uh, as a student, I never gave any consideration whatsoever towards my liability of, of if something had happened. I just assumed that the the uh, insurance for the, the uh, place where I rented the airplane from would cover all of that, but that's not always the case. Yep. So, and, and I'll tell you, John, that's 
That's been an issue that I've been addressing most recently where um, these renter pilots have lost an airplane, crashed the airplane, and you know their fleet policy doesn't cover them. So they really need to have an individual policy as well. Right. If for nothing else, the cost to defend. You know, yeah. if, if you have to defend yourself and get a lawyer, uh, good aviation lawyers don't come cheap. So it's good to have your own policy, your own defenses in it. And to do that, you can get that through Avemco. Give them a call if you need to renew your policy on your airplane. You bought an airplane, which seems to be a lot of people doing that this, this time. It's, you know, house prices are going high, but so airplanes are selling rather briskly. So give them a call at 888-879-0389 or on the web at avemco.com. Great people to deal with. And if you have problems with insurance, they'll talk to you. And even if you're not there uh, having insurance from them, they'll help you through the insurance process. Uh, I'm working with them right now on a life insurance policy since it's pilot specific. So, um, you know, they're very diverse. They're great to work with. And, uh, and so, you know, I'm glad that they are a sponsor of, uh, of our show. And speaking of which, you and I are going to be in Oshkosh together, um, doing a little bit of a road show. Of course, we're going to be spending some time with our sponsor, Avemco, at, uh, at Oshkosh and AirVenture. And we're actually going to be interviewing people. Um, if you are a uh, customer of Avemco, there's a high probability that if you show up when we're there, we may have you on the show as well. And then uh, we're also fortunate because uh, a lot of people don't may not know who uh, Rob Ryder is, and you, you've seen him on AOPA videos, sporty videos, and he does a lot of work with, uh, with Avemco as well. So we're gonna have him on the show when we're, uh, we're at Air Venture. I think that his background is an air show announcer and, and orator of a lot of training videos and things like that. will be a, an interesting show as well. So definitely look us up. Uh, John and I will be not only walking around, I've got a lot of duties to, while I'm there. I'm going to be uh, judging the uh, Founders Innovation Awards on the, the first Tuesday that the show opens. And then I also emcee the, um, the General Aviation Awards. And then uh, NAFI, the National Association of Flight Instructors, uh, we've got a board meeting. So there's a, a full schedule there. And then, of course, John. You and I, and maybe Todd, you need to show up as well. Um, hey, I'm, you're convincing me. Yep, uh, you need to come. You know, it, it, we, we missed last year, so everybody's going to be, uh, you know, rocking and rolling for an air show this year, especially at Air Venture. So um, I think it's going to be a good time. I, uh, I haven't looked at the long-term prognosis for weather, but uh, we've been pretty pretty fortunate the last few years that the weather has been great. So. And um, so I'm looking forward to finally getting back into the swing of air shows. And speaking of that, since I'm in my office at Rocky Mountain Metropolitan Airport in uh, Broomfield, Colorado, I am blessed to have a B-17 parked outside the window of my office. So on a beautiful day in Colorado, looking at that shiny silver bird, which is one of my favorite airplanes, um, I'm motivated so let's rock and roll and talk aviation, John. Okay. Well, you know what? Uh, one of the before we even get into what the uh, current state of uh, 
flying is today. I, uh, I just like to let everybody know that a good friend of Greg and I is, is uh, Wally Funk, and she just was accepted by Jeff, or offered by Jeff Bios um, to fly on the first airplane with Jeff and his brother-in-law. Uh, and you, Greg, you and I both know Wally. Uh, I, Wally's a wonderful, wonderful person. And uh, after I came to the board, I spent some time with her. And I know she was a dear friend of yours as well. And it, I'm just so pleased for her that she could finally get a ride to space where, where the, uh, the, the process essentially screwed her and the other Mercury 13 women. At the 11th hour, they decided no women were going to go to space, which, uh, thank God, if, if somebody in the government were to do that today, they'd probably be fired. Yep. No, I'm, uh, I'm very blessed that, uh, that I got to know Wally when I was an intern at, uh, at the NTSB coming out of Embry-Riddle. My first assignment was out in California, and Wally was a, uh, an accident investigator assigned to, the, at that time, the Los Angeles field office. And she basically took me under her wing and she became my first mentor at the NTSB. She couldn't do enough to, to help me and, and educate me on accident investigation, safety, and just being a, a, you know, a, a good investigator and, and really being enthusiastic. The one thing about Wally, and if you don't know her, but if you go on the internet and research some of her videos that, uh, that show interviews, that woman at 82 years old has more energy than people that are in their 30s. She, I call her ricochet rabbit because she's constantly moving all the time. She's like the energizer bunny. Um, she's very enthusiastic, very positive. Uh, she was an active flight instructor. But when I met her, I mean, I was just, I mean, I was just learning the ropes and we became the, the best of friends. Um, she's always become, or she had become my biggest cheerleader. She, she still is my biggest cheerleader to this day. Every time she's watching one of the uh, ACI shows, Mayday or whatever, no fail. She calls me to tell me how happy she is to see me on TV. Uh, we stay in touch. I do a lot of presentations to a lot of the women's group, the 99s and, and so on. And I can't be more happy because her passion since the Mercury program, and when you read about her, and, and I encourage our listeners to just research Wally, her amazing life, not just her career, her amazing life, um, you're going to be impressed. And I wrote on my Facebook page, a little diatribe about my relationship with her. And I think if you're a woman, doesn't matter what age, young, old, or everywhere in between, you're going to find something in Wally's life story that not only is amazing, but encouraging and inspiring. And I would really recommend that you, you look on the internet and, and read about this woman's amazing story because uh, she outperformed all of the Mercury men astronauts. And, um, and she got a lot of accolades for it. And, uh, and then unfortunately, the, the female part of the program was nixed, but she's always had that passion to go to space. 
And for as long as I've known her, that has been her ultimate lifelong dream was to go to space. And she got, she got teased a little bit uh, recently with Branson when Branson was going to take her up on, on his space shot as a passenger. Um, it never really panned out, came to fruition. But I'm glad now uh, with Jeff Bezos um, and her, it looks like that partnership is in fact going to, uh, to take place and she is going to go to space. And I couldn't be more happy for her. I love that woman. I love her energy, her positive attitude. And I'm glad to see that her lifelong dream is finally going to come to fruition. Yeah, I'll ditto all of that. I'm glad to see it too. And she may still get to fly with Virgin. I mean, I, if I remember right, she paid the $200,000 deposit to go uh, on the Virgin flight. So she may end up doing two flights this year. Well, if that's the case because the, the Virgin is scheduled to go later this year. Yeah, she, um, I, I just, I'm, I'm very happy for her. And uh, I'll tell you, I hope I have as much energy at 82 that she has. Um, she is just a spectacular woman. And, um, and I, again, I encourage all of our listeners, go on the internet, take a look at her Wikipedia page, just put in her name and read about her amazing life. Hey, you know, Greg, why don't we see if we can't get her on the show? I, that is uh, already in the works, John, and we will have her on the show um, because I think that uh, that one, it's going to be very entertaining. She's a great storyteller. And uh, as we always try to do on this particular show, there's always a backstory that you may not see in the, in the headlines and the front pages. Wally's going to give us some of her backstory. All right. Sounds like a plan. Okay. So we had a busy, uh, a busy week on the accident scene in aviation. Once again. Right. And one of the things that, that yeah, I, I have been talking about on previous shows, both of us have been talking about it. Uh, and it, it's scary. I mean, we talk about rusty pilots, for lack of a better term, people going out there flying and they haven't flown very much in the last year or maybe even more. And uh, they're jumping in their airplanes going. And we said we were concerned six months ago, we've been talking about this, concerned about an accident rate climbing because pilots think that they can just go back in and jump in the airplane and uh, go flying with your skills get stale over time. And if you don't go with somebody else that's more current than you are, uh, you're just asking for trouble. And when I look through the list of, of accidents that have popped up over the last, uh, it's been more than a week, but even over just the last week, the number of uh, accidents we've had, it's getting scary. I hope my predictions are wrong. With all my heart, I hope they're wrong, but boy, uh, I, I'm just scared what I'm seeing. And I'll, and John, the biggest thing is, is that a number of these accidents that have happened in the recent past, not only were they flight instruction, but now, um, more recently, there was a, an SR-20, I believe, that crashed. Um, pilot took off, had a problem, and classic stall spin. Tried to, tried to get back, um, pulled in the turn, and, you know, stall spun the airplane to the point where the aircraft hit inverted or almost inverted. Um, and there's a picture of that aircraft sticking out of the ground. I mean, again, you and I and Todd have had this conversation in the recent past about 
where is everything coming out of this loss of control um, uh, working group that has been ongoing for five, six years? I've brought this up with a number of the alphabet groups. None of us have seen any of this information. And uh, I'm working with some groups now to try and get something out um, with regard to where are the tools? Where is the information? Because as you said, yeah, your skills are rusty. And again, I always preach it. I've given three presentations in the last week, uh, a couple via Zoom, where we're talking about pilots who do not understand aviation. They may know some aviation. They have enough information to get the airplane in the air and get back down, but they don't really understand the basics of aviation, especially when you overshoot final and rather than level the wings, go around, burn a little gas and get it right the second time, they're trying to salvage a bad situation. They crank that turn into a, a greater bank and they pull. And when they do that, they get into an accelerated stall spiral or stall spin. And there is no margin of error, especially when you're turning base to final. Give it up. Roll the wings level. You know, if you're at a towered airport, just tell them, hey, you know, I'm going around. But do not try to salvage these bad situations because it, unfortunately, it's going to end badly. So it's just, uh, it's frustrating to see these reports every single week. And yeah. It's it just, it's frustrating. Yes, as investigators, you know, we're supposed to be the cool and calm collected people uh, when we're looking at these things, but they still, they still get to you when you realize that, that people have perished needlessly because they just, just missed uh, the facts. You know, yeah. just like our, our slogan, just the facts, man. Well, they missed the facts <laughs> of flying. Yep. And, and now, as of the time of this recording, there was a, uh, a ditching of a large aircraft, a 737-200 off the coast of Hawaii this morning. As we are recording this show, the investigation process is underway. Uh, it was a cargo operator, took off, apparently had a uh, dual engine issue that they could not get the airplane back to the airport and ended up putting the airplane down in the water. And I know, Todd, um, Mr. Statistician over here, <laughs> Uh, you know exactly how many ditchings there have been that were, we'll call them successful in the jet age. Well, by ditching, we're talking <clears throat> not the airplane ended up in the water for any reason, but a controlled, deliberate landing in the water where the water is deep enough where there's risk of drowning. This is, to my count, only the fifth time it's happened. The first one was in 1963 in Russia. Then you have to go forward to 1970 in the Caribbean. There was a uh, DC-9, uh, I believe it was. And then we fast forward to 1996. It was an Ethiopian hijack event mm -hmm. where they had to ditch it in the Comoros uh, close to, uh, to the island. And then, of course, 2009 on the Hudson, which we all know about. This would be the fifth one. So, again, it'll take some time for the details to come out. But this was happening at night, local time, uh, in the water, several miles off the coast. Had to be challenging as all... Uh, as all get out, it'll be interesting to see what the uh, transcript of that uh, CVR will be. Well, it's going to be interesting to see if they get to it, because I, uh, I know from experience that off all the Hawaiian islands, it goes deep quick. Yeah, essentially, 
essentially the Hawaiian Islands are the, are the top of the mountains. And it, you know, there's, if I remember right, just a, uh, just a mile outside of the harbor in Honolulu, the, the, the bottom is 6,000 feet. So it's deep, deep water. So they're going to, they're going to have a challenge. The Navy will, will probably recover that for them. Well, uh, I hope the NTSB puts on their snorkel gear and holds their breath. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's a little too deep for that, but it, it'll be interesting to see because uh, it's so unusual to have two engines out. I mean, Sully got it with birds. These guys didn't report birds. They just reported engine problems. Yeah. Uh, I, and I assume somebody went after that fuel truck that fueled the airplane to make sure that uh, we got the right fuel in there. And, uh, you know, I've, I've, seen, uh, I, I've seen times where gasoline has found its way into uh, Jet A fuel trucks, which, yeah. is a, a, which is a disaster for the turbine engines. Yeah. Oh, now, good. this is an older airplane as well, John. It's a Dash 200. I mean, that airplane has been around almost as long as you, and that's a long, long time. Um, so yeah, The last one was built in the early 80s, so it, it really has been a long time. Yeah. So this particular uh, aircraft was, uh, was manufactured, I believe, in 1975. All right. So it's almost 50 years old, 2025. It's almost 50 years old. Wow. I'm, I, I am, I am so glad. I'm so glad, John, you didn't pull out your abacus to try and do the calculation. <laughs> <laughs> to do the calculation. I saw those wheels turning. It's like, man, did you, <laughs> did you use your fingers and toes to figure that one out or what? Yeah, I did. Down here, I'm off, off camera, I've got the, the, uh, the tools. Yeah. <laughs> But, All right, so so Greg, I've got a question for you. Yeah, uh, and uh, for our audience to hear, uh, you just got the bell. The you, the bell just rang at the NTSB, and you got this accident. What are you doing? As little as possible. It's a holiday weekend. I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's, that's probably the answer. But uh, now, um, and in fact, it it is kind of interesting because. On this day that we're recording this particular show, the bell did go off for me, and it was a DC-9-30 that crashed in Charlotte, North Carolina. Yeah, that, bell rang, that bell rang in my house as well. Exactly. U.S. Air 1016 happened on this day, and, um, and so the bell did go off. The team arrived um, after all of the... Uh, all of the conversations that took place, all the initial notifications and information that took place um, via a telephone bridge, which is basically a giant conference call. Uh, the team met at, um, at Hangar 6 at Washington National Airport and the FAA ended up flying the team down to Charlotte to start the investigation process. I would presume that in this particular instance, there's a local investigator uh, that is a field investigator who will arrive on scene out in Hawaii to at least start the process and, and try to collect as much information until the NTSB, if they in fact decide to send a team. It may not be a complete team um, just because this, this type of event may not necessitate it since you don't have an aircraft to look at, so you don't need system structures or power plants 
immediately, they may send a partial team. But eventually, if they recover any parts of the aircraft and definitely the FDR and CVR, then they'll start to convene those groups. But the process is, is going to be started. Local FAA, since they're already there, uh, can start gathering information. And, um, and then uh, they're probably going to try and get to uh, the crew, um, I would expect, in the next day or two. I mean, this is a traumatic event, even though the flight crew survived. It is a traumatic event. You try not to bother them immediately after these traumatic events, but they'll want to get at least some initial information to uh, extend what areas of the investigation need to, uh, to happen now. Maintenance records, they're going to probably be looking at maintenance. And as you said, John, getting to the fuel truck, getting fuel samples, finding out the fueling process and see if there was any kind of fuel contamination, things like that. So. The process has begun. It's going to be some work over a holiday weekend. Um, but again, accident investigation doesn't take a vacation. So we need to know what's going on because if there is a serious issue or a possibility that this issue can happen again, we got to we got to nip it right now. Yes. If, if I uh, may add something uh, tangential to this, uh, the two of you reminiscing about the 1016 event on July 3rd. Reminds me, there is another anniversary that's happening on July 3rd. 25 years ago today, I launched airsafe.com. <laughs> There's a shameless plug, Todd. Thank you very much. What other kind of plug is there? Wait till you get our bill. <laughs> yeah. there, is, there is a bill for advertising on our show, my friend. <laughs> Sales are rare. Marketing is everywhere. Yeah, yeah, you took advantage of that one. Well, we know where you are. Wait, for you know bill. where I live. <laughs> the bill collector will be knocking on your door. That's right. Yeah. So, so whoever's duty, whoever has the duty this weekend from the NTSB, will probably get a break on this one since there's nothing to go look at. They probably won't really start the investigation process in earnest until Tuesday of next week, or maybe Monday. Well, if it was me and in back in the day that we were there, John, we launched. Um, we didn't wait for holidays to be over. We launched. Right. And and again, the modus operandi that you and I have talked about and have been very critical of the board where they launch when it's convenient and things like that is ridiculous because you lose valuable dynamic information that can be lost or um, you know, the stories change or whatever um, as time passes. So, yeah. I mean, if it was me, I'd be going. One, you're going to Hawaii. <laughs> I mean, really? Come on. I mean, and you guys laugh, but hell, I'll be there. I'll, be, I'll, I'll work. I mean, I, I have no problem. I went to the Bahamas. Right. I was just going to say, you you wove this story of BS out how hard you were working in the in the Bahamas on that accident investigation down there. And somehow it was not believable. It just didn't, it just didn't carry that you were out on the runway in the heat all day long. I would right. you wouldn't believe the conditions that I had to deal with, the fire ants and the flies and the humidity. And all it, of that on the beach. I'm sorry, but that's close to where the runway was. 
I mean, is this job has its perks, but it's hard work. So it is. So and I stick to this story. So all right, you're gonna to stick to your story. All right. So we also had didn't we have two Cirrus crashes this week? Yeah, we had uh, a parachute guy, guy pulled the parachute after some sort of engine issue. Um, they went down, I think, in water, but survived and, and were able to get out. And, um, and then um, there was a, uh, I believe it was a um, CTLS, light sport aircraft, um, that went down as well. Again, they have a ballistic parachute, and it was a survivable event, so... Boy, that, that parachute, we, we had the, uh, was it the owner of that company that makes the parachute on? Yes, BRS, uh-huh. Right. Yeah, Enrique. Right. Mm -hmm. They've got to be smiling inside the number of people that they have saved from plane crashes because it, it's got to be about 400 people now. Well, now there's, a, there's an issue now coming up, the, you know, because these parachutes have a service life of about 10 years. And so those people that bought airplanes i.e. Cirrus that uh, are about 10 years old, there could be a run on these parachutes because they're going to have to replace them. And hopefully there won't be a shortage. So again, kind of like having to upgrade your avionics to ADSB and everybody pushed it off and pushed it off and pushed it off and tried to wait till the last minute. And then, oh, by the way, <laughs> they couldn't get their aircraft in for timely conversion for ADSB in and out. Um, don't wait till the last minute. If you have one of these airplanes, check your records, make sure your parachute um, is still in, um, in its certificated range. If it isn't, then get on the ball and, uh, and make the appropriate plans to get a replacement chute. Yes, that is, that's been such a lifesaver, such yeah. a lifesaver. Yeah. Well, I know that, um, we had uh, Todd on and we were talking about drones and, and aerial vehicles. And now, of course, we're talking about the uh, UAPs, which are aerial phenomenons. And there was a report that was published with regard to uh, these UAP sightings, uh, especially by military pilots and commercial airline pilots. The report came out and it it generated a lot of, I, I, I don't know if we could call it controversy, Todd, but it did stir a lot of emotion, I think, in some regards. And uh, some, some of the comments were critical. Some of the comments were favorable. So I know that you've been studying this since uh, we talked about it last. Give us your update, your take on what's going on and, and the feelings about the report. Because I remember in our conversation, you, me, and John, I was concerned that here you have military pilots who are identifying something and then basically being poo-pooed that, yeah, we don't know what it is, but you know they really didn't see anything. And all of a sudden, now you start challenging the credibility of very accomplished pilots like that. Um, what you know, what does that do, not only to morale, but what does that do to the public that goes, you can't just turn a blind eye to this? Well, this report that came out was a tip of a very large iceberg. And I'm not even going to go into the whole social dynamics of how the general public looks at things in the sky that, you know, are unexplained and the whole UFO subculture. Let's separate that entirely. 
this was something, this report was a product of both the US intelligence community and the Department of Defense. Uh, there were some ongoing issues, have been ongoing issues with, especially in training areas where something or someone has been repeatedly interrupting training and things were happening in the sky that were simply beyond the uh, understanding of even the US government. And I'm gonna separate here some of the reports that have been coming out over the last few years of drone swarms and what appear to be drones operating in military areas, which could very well be intelligence operations by adversary forces. We're talking about something fundamentally different. Uh, they're talking about in this report, which was unclassified, there was a classified report in much more detail. This is a report where one criticism, this is a legitimate one, is very high level. They said from 2004 to 2021, we had 144 events, one of which we can identify, the other 143 we could not. <clears throat> so far, so good. What really intrigued me was, even though this was a very thin report, there were things said in there that I had not seen before in print from the US government. Uh, one of them being that, yes, we have been looking at these, Yes, we looked at these with multiple systems, electro-optical, radar, visual, et cetera. And there was a line in there that says something of the fact that in many of these cases, these multiple systems looking at these things was consistent with this being a solid object, which again, kind of floored me because uh, of course you can imagine there can be some uh, phenomena, lightning and whatnot that might be rather energetic, rather um, spectacular, but it's not solid. And maybe you're thinking, well, maybe these things are some unusual atmospheric phenomena. The implication in that line was basically that at least some of these were not. Another thing that was very surprising was, not surprising, but they blatantly, straightforwardly, no ifs, ands, or buts said that this is a safety of flight issue and possibly a national security issue. And on the safety of flight side, they said of those 144 events, 143 unknowns rather, there were 11 that were near midair collisions or the whatever they were, were very close to these military aircraft. And another 18, I believe, where <clears throat> the objects displayed performance characteristics that were beyond the understanding of, of uh, the US technical side. So could this be an adversary, Russia, China, what have you? If so, it would represent an order of magnitude increase in flight capability which would be certainly a national security issue. But again, these are things that have been happening since 2004 in this report. And there have been uh, reports even earlier than that of these kinds of extraordinary characteristic type aircraft. But let's move to the side that's relevant to civil aviation. Uh, one of the things they said, they implied that they're going to, they didn't imply rather, there are three things that came out on the same day. The report we all heard about, the same day, there was a one-page, essentially, essentially policy letter from a Deputy Secretary of Defense directing all the military to get together and figure out what kind of process are we going to have, how is it going to be enhanced, and there will be a follow-on organization to the one that published this report that will be taking this forward. So it's implying that there will be an all-of-government approach to addressing the military aspect of this and securing the training ranges of the US. They were specifically talking about that. Now, that sounds a little strange, but if you look at the 144, most of the events that were in there, they said were associated with two general areas of the United States, the training areas around Southern uh, Arizona 
and others off the southeastern United States. There are other training areas, but keep in mind that this report was also mostly from naval resources. Um, there's actually been a change in naval policy, I think back in 2019, they mentioned, where there was a more formalized process for reporting these UAPs. The Air Force only signed on to this process, I believe, in uh, December uh, or November of last year. So obviously, uh, they may not have that many right now, but going forward, there will be more. But let's get to the civil side. Let me ask you a question. Uh, you Go know, in, in, in reading through the report and, and just doing a little bit of research, you know, one of the things as an accident investigator is you're always trying, trying to corroborate evidence. And that is, if somebody says, okay, I saw this or I did this or whatever, you're always trying to find something either physical or someone else who may have had the same observations and that kind of stuff. One of the things that kind of struck me was, okay, we got these guys in high-tech airplanes tracking them. We got video. They're, you know, they're narrating. They're doing all of this stuff. Is this same object being captured by anything that we got sitting in space, given the fact that we got thousands of satellites up there, you know, and, you know, it's not a secret. We got spy satellites and everything else up there. Are they picking up what these guys are actually seeing down here in the atmosphere? That is, is there a cooperation between that F-18 pilot who captures something on video do they then try to find a satellite in the area and corroborate that same either video uh, or visual evidence or some sort of electronic evidence to support or negate that particular sighting? This is speculation on my part, but given that the unclassified report mentioned a whole string of intelligence community organizations, including, I believe, the National Geospatial Agency, if I have that acronym right, which uh, does one would presume, uh, space-based uh, research and, and, and intelligence gathering. Very likely so. There was a classified version of this, which of course was not given to the general public, and that might be in there, and maybe at some point they'll uh, have that. But certainly, there are assets in space that the U.S. has had literally for generations that would do things such as being able to spot the plumes of rockets coming up from the surface, they were spotting all sorts of scud activity during the uh, various wars in the Middle East. They can spot oil well fires, forest fires, et cetera. Presumably, if there's some sort of heat signature coming off of something unknown, they can coordinate that on the ground. But I'll leave that aside at the moment because right now that's speculation. What isn't speculation is that this report implied that they are and have been taking information from the FAA. Reports that pilots might call in to FAA, let's say if there's some sort of mid-air collision or some sort of unusual activity. And they mentioned that the FAA had other information, radar type information that they might look at. And they speculated that the, the FAA has, how do they call it, um, assets to basically uh, connect with the public, connect with the flying public that they might use. So it's implying that there has been a use of FAA resources there may be a greater use of FAA resources. What I haven't seen in any of the three documents that were released, the main report, the one-page uh, policy, and then there was a statement from the um, press office of the Department of Defense. None of that mentioned explicitly FAA. I've seen nothing coming out of the FAA that talks about this. But uh, 
this may or may not be on the horizon. And this segues into what I'd like to talk about next. I think that the writing is clearly on the wall that if nothing else, this is a safety flight issue, potential safety flight issue. And then anyone who witnesses something like this, who's a private or commercial pilot, it would be responsible to report it either live on the air to FAA air traffic control or to some other official US government resource where this can be looked at from the aviation safety perspective. Do you think that the newly created Space Force is gonna have a responsibility for monitoring and tracking this kind of stuff in a more in-depth way now that we now have a, uh, a quote military organization dedicated to space? The policy letter did state that all aspects of the DOD would be involved in this, and presumably that would be the Space Force. Part of the US Space Force's mission includes essentially watching for ballistic missiles coming over the horizon and that sort of space-based observation and, uh, and, and monitoring. So presumably that would be part of the system. There has been, of course, that kind of asset at work in the Space Force and prior to that within the US Air Force for decades. And it's my speculation that there are probably a lot of anomalous information that had come in through radar systems and such, some of which were probably just that anonymous, uh, anomalous uh, atmospheric things, technical things, things that were presumably explained by equipment failure and the like. There are things that may not be. And that gets back to uh, what they seem to be implying with the FAA and that the looking at FAA data, whether it's through machine learning, artificial intelligence, trying to see, well, hey, we have this massive information here. And the FAA has reports about anomalous things that happens with their systems. Maybe we can look at this and see if there are some UAPs associated with this. Again, very, very high level in this report, and I can't go beyond that. But my focus is, this is all very entertaining in the sense of, it's interesting. I'd like to know more. You'd like to know more, John. You'd like to know more, too. But what the heck can people like us do? We're not in the intelligence community. We're not in a policy position at the DOD or FAA. We're involved in aviation at various levels, especially yourself, Greg, flying on a regular basis. What can you as a pilot, or if you're a mechanic, someone on the, on the ground, air traffic controller, flight attendant who's in the air, something happens. What can you do that can actually have an impact? And like what we are talking about last week, about the only thing I've seen that is a formal US government resource that the FAA uses where this kind of report can be put in and has been put in in the past is the Aviation Safety Reporting System of NASA. Uh, that's been around for decades. There is a certain process that they have. And if you do see something and report it fully in the format that they like, it might be useful. And on top of that, the de-identified data your tail number, your name, your company's name doesn't show up. The de-identified data will be available to the public at large. Well, I think that, uh, again, this is, I, I think this is going to continue to be a story. It may not be a front page story unless something really phenomenal is captured and recorded. We know over, <laughs> over the history of these sightings, people have phonied things up and, you know, created storylines and who knows how many uh, cable TV shows there are regarding these phenomenon and everything else. But I think that when you have credible sightings, 
such as from the military or even commercial airline pilots. I mean, some of this stuff is, you know, you can't make it up. Uh, and so I think that uh, it will be interesting to see if there is in fact a, a simple way to report these events without feeling embarrassed or thinking that somebody's gonna chastise you for having done so, uh, we may get more, even more reports and, um, and maybe something will in fact pan out. But I agree with you that even if you see something out there, you know, floating in space or whatever, it can create a, a safety of flight issue because you'll have people trying to react, even if it's nothing out there, but it's a visual illusion because we've seen people react to visual illusions and end up losing control of the airplane or crashing an airplane. And, uh, and this could pose a similar danger to not only the people, the occupants of the aircraft, but you know, people on the ground as well. And let me just add one example that happened recently over, I believe it was Tucson. It wasn't a UAP, it was what appeared to be an extremely highly capable drone that was being chased by, I believe, uh, two uh, police aircraft, one helicopter, and maybe a second helicopter. They chased this thing for quite a, a while. They were at altitude. They lost it in clouds. And from the reports they had coming in, this thing was maneuvering in an intelligent fashion. Whether it was remotely controlled from the ground or remotely controlled through some other means, I'm not sure. But at the very least, this is an extremely highly capable um, uncrewed aircraft that was flying in restricted airspace, which is a safety flight issue, as well as a security issue, since part of the airspace it was over was, I believe, a military base. And you had police helicopters who were trying to chase this down and couldn't do it. So again, whether you think it's a drone or not, whether you think it's a military project gone haywire or not, if you see something like that, that's the kind of thing to report. Even if you've never seen something like that before, even if the behavior is something you've never seen before, even if it's something you never read about before, but you think it's a problem, Report it. You know, you, say, John? you know, we had we had the docking for the space shuttle a week or ten days ago, whatever it was, and in the in the live feed video feed, there was another object in it, and uh, suddenly that whole uh, issue went quiet, and uh, you know, it wasn't identified. It was they were given the pool who answers. The, the government was given the pool, but it was clearly an object flying close to the space shuttle, the, the space station in flight, and it was picked up on the docking camera for the for the supply mission. And uh, it went quiet. You haven't heard anything about that. But it was clear as a day that there was something out there. Did it look like a piece of space junk? Did they try to even give you an, <laughs> yeah. an idea of whether it's a space junk or a satellite or something else? I, I saw nothing. It just went quiet, but they did cut the the uh, the feed, the video feed. They switched the feed, so I think it was clearly something flying out there. They didn't expect to see it. It got into the field of view with a camera, and suddenly they realized there was something there, and they switched the camera, switched it off. That could be something as simple as a chunk of ice, or maybe a surveillance satellite from an adversary that was maneuvering close to the space station. If it were something like that. I can understand the national security reasons why they wouldn't want to publicize it. But at the same time, it's on a live feed. You're just yeah, going to go you gotta quiet. explain something. At least give me a good lie to run with. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, we didn't get that. And, and who who could be doing that? The Russians are already on it. 
so all their satellites aren't going to be wasting fuel to come up and look at a docking because they can get it live themselves. They're right there. So the only other entity that could be, would, if it was that, would be the Chinese because they're the new game in town in space. You know, India and Saudi Arabia, they all have satellites, geo, geosynchronous satellites providing communication links. Uh, they don't really have spy satellites running around up in space. So it only could be the Chinese or some other thing that we don't know about. There's a small number of entities and nations that can launch payloads of substance into orbit. And uh, most of them are uh, in cahoots with one another in that they have a business relationship. ESA is not going to do something behind NASA's back because that would be crazy. But uh, would it be crazy for, I don't know, a technologically advanced company in country X that's doing something to impress their own government so they can sell the system. They say, hey, look what we did. We didn't ask permission. We just did it. Now that we've shown you that we can do this, let's have a contract. Yeah. Well, I think this is going to be an, a story that I, you know, we'll continue uh, to cover periodically because it is related to, um, you know, possibly safety of flight issues. And um, hopefully we won't have any issues. But uh, again, you know, as you said, if there is a way to report this kind of information, you shouldn't feel embarrassed to report it. You know, at least let somebody try and run it to ground and, and see if, in fact, it is something of substance and, uh, and maybe helpful in the whole grand scheme of things of explaining what it may or may not be. So. And one piece of one last suggestion for those who are in management and leadership of aviation organizations, be it airlines or FBOs, et cetera. This isn't something where it has to be a, uh, a cost center out of your company. There's already systems out there. And again, I mentioned ASRS, where if all you do is recommend to people in your organization, this is an issue, take the time to read up on it, report it if something happens and leave it at that. If you just exert a little bit of leadership saying, we as a company are not going to be upset if you report this anonymously because it's an issue. Uh, you know, don't bring our company name into it because for obvious reasons, but you go to ASRS, our company name is not gonna be in the public record. So you're gonna be helping aviation and not hurting us. Yeah, good advice, excellent. Yeah. It's well, John, you know, one of the things that uh, you and I had talked about earlier this week, and I was gonna get into it, but I think we'll wait and talk about it in the next show because I want to. I definitely want to get back to uh, dissecting an accident. And one of the accidents I want to dissect um, just came to me out of the blue, um, and I, I don't know why I was thinking about it, other than the fact that it happened in the D.C. area uh, when I was still in. Uh, let's see, I think I was in either grade school or junior high. So I know that you know you were well into your later years when this accident happened. So you'll remember it a lot better than I. Um, TWA 7-2, Mount Weather in Virginia. We do, I do remember it well. Yep, I knew you would. And um, if for some reason, I, I don't know if it was a picture that came to me or whatever, but I would love to do that accident. And I think um, I'm gonna start researching it so we can do that on a near future upcoming show, because I think that was an interesting accident, not from necessarily what happened, but what came out of that accident, because there were some changes that were very instrumental and impactful 
pardon the pun, um, on aviation safety. And I think that would be a, a good accident for us to, to talk about and provide some commentary to our listeners about. But the other issue I wanna talk about and possibly we'll start the show with this discussion and that is um, some of the misinformation, the misunderstanding and the lack of, of research on the part of the media with regard to the 777X, the certification, um, when the airplane's supposedly going to come into service and why some of the issues involving um, the fact that some of the banner headlines were FAA is refusing to certify that airplane. It's a software issue. And as these airplanes are more technically advanced, you're going to see that it's not hardware, it's software. These software issues were recognized. It was only on one test aircraft. Um, the software engineers are looking at it, but some of the misinformation was that the airplane won't fly till 2024 because of the FAA, and that simply isn't true. The backstory is, of course, that the airlines don't want the airplane sitting on the ramp because international travel has not come back in full force as it was before the pandemic. And the last thing they want is an asset sitting on a ramp, you know, collecting dust. So I want to get more into that. I'm, I'm still researching it as I know you are. And I think we need to address this because again, it's misinformation. It's, you know, poke the Boeing and poke the FAA. And, and I don't have a problem with poking either of them when it's warranted, but some of this information, and in fact, I just got an email from a DER out in Seattle regarding this issue. So I want to uh, I want you to look at it as well because I know it came to you, and um, and let's research it and, and talk about it um, in the next show, since I think it is timely. And then I really want to get into that Mount Weather accident because that was close to home. I grew up in that area, and I remember it well as a kid, just from the news media coverage. But uh, now that I got a little more education about accident investigation and aviation. Um, I think that uh, the listeners might find it entertaining and enjoyable to understand really what came out of these earlier accidents that we haven't talked about. Right. And that led to a lot of changes, as you said. I remember that well. And, and, and I absolutely, I, I know why the government was so hot over about that accident because of where it happened. So we can talk about all of that next time. And, uh, and, you know, accidents that changed aviation is what it's essentially what it is. And, and every and and we all know that every accident, or at least we hope every accident has a positive change in aviation. But there are some that have more changes associated with them than others. Um, when you look at what we found when I did uh, American Eagle 4184 in Roselawn, the way we look at icing and certifying aircraft for flight into known icing and the equipment and the training and things like that, that had a broad-based uh, change in aviation. Um, there are others where you might find one or two items. Um, of course, the, uh, the discussion again has popped up uh, through the NTSB with regard to video recorders in the cockpits and that kind of stuff. I still think all of that is doable and you don't necessarily need to show the humans in these, these pictures or these videos. I don't care 
what the pilot looks like when they're saying, what's it doing now? I want to see what they're looking at. That prompted them to say, what's it doing now? And right. I think so, there is a, there is a, a today's, today's accident with the 737 is a case in point, right? It's going to have an old flight data recorder on it. Yeah. We're not going to have a lot, a lot of information available to us. We're going to have expanded basic information because it had most likely had an upgraded recorder, but nowhere near what we have in the modern airplanes. I remind people over and over that before the, before the A380 was flying, I was told that they were going to have 1,800 parameters recorded. I mean, 1,800. I, can't, I don't know that I can even identify 1,800 things, <laughs> things that we need for an accident investigation. That's a lot of data. That's a lot of data. So modern airplanes are going to satisfy the prediction that's been made before. Because of electronics on the airplane, we will no longer have to do on-scene investigations. Yeah. And, and it's coming close to that with, with these recorders that can get that much data. You might not even have to go out. If we finally get the, the systems in place that's going to beam it up constantly in flight and, yeah. and capture it someplace, then you don't even have to go out. Well, I'll, I'll disagree with you because as you and I have talked in the recent past about a specific airplane that's composite and there's issues with the composite material, you still have to go out and physically examine the aircraft structure to make sure that there are no engineering design or manufacturing flaws that caused or contributed to it. Yeah, I, I agree with all the data coming down that can definitely focus the investigation, but I think you're still gonna need to go out and physically look at the remnants of whatever the aircraft was that, uh, that crashed just to ensure that there is no flaw with the designer, the manufacturer of that, or even, you know, up uh, maintenance um, with or the continued airworthiness maintenance that's required of these aircraft. Because as we start to transition more into composites, get away from metal, which we have a huge catalog of information on, we don't have a huge catalog of information about how composites react to the environment and the manufacturing process and things like that. Right, but that, but some of that modern technology can give us those clues. Oh, sure, you know, absolutely. For example, I, I, was, uh, I had a discussion with, with uh, some engineers in the composite side of, of certification within the FAA. And you know, we have, we have a grid inside the, the composites for lightning protection. Right, you can measure that grid, right, and that you can record that data, and that that will bring you uh, right the area where where it's separated. So if that's separated in flight before the event started, then you know that you've maybe just lost the tail for some reason. But anyway, uh, it's going to start out. We're going to blend to, but in the long, you know, maybe it's thirty years away from now. But eventually, there'll be enough data, onboard data, that's recorded that. No, I agree. I mean, that's, that's where we're going. And that's the benefit of technology. Yep. So, well, gentlemen, I think it's been another one of those entertaining podcast video casts. And it's always good to, to have you guys 
you know, help me out with the show. So thanks for your participation. Your participation award will be in the mail. So, uh, <laughs> well, uh, I want to remind everybody that this show has been brought to you by PAMA, the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association, PAMA.org, and Avemco, avemco.com. And their number is 888-879-0389. If you need to renew your policy, you get a new policy because you just bought an airplane, flight instructors policy, uh, student pilot policy to cover liability, or as Greg said, life insurance uh, policy. Uh, mm -hmm. Give them a call. Competitive rates, nice people to deal with. Uh, you won't go wrong. Yep. Now, Todd, if you noticed when John was, you know, talking about one of our sponsors, PAMA, and he was very calibrated with P-A-M-A, -A. you know why he does that? Because he has those, remember those alphabet letters when you were in grade school that were on the wall? <laughs> he has to look up there at P-A-M-A. Hey, whatever works. Yeah. Oh, I'm so happy that John is my co-host and, uh, you know, because I can tweak him a little bit. He's a very good sport. I love this guy to death. He's, uh, he's my walking encyclopedia of maintenance knowledge and regulations and anything else political. So I love you, John. I hope you guys, uh, you know, stick around for a while to help me with this show. Looking forward to it. Okay. Well, John, uh, it's been another great episode of Flight Safety Detectives. And of course, I'm looking forward to seeing you at Oshkosh in the near future. I know that we're going to have a couple more shows before we get there. And hopefully we'll get Todd to join us as well. We'll make it entertaining, uh, especially since he's going to definitely be bringing the big credit card so he can wine and dine us. He owes us. He owes us. He does. He owes us for that shameless plug for his own <laughs> show. I mean, come on. Jeez. Got to pay us back. <sighs> but uh, again, I am looking forward to it. And um, as always, I will leave you as we leave this particular episode with the last words. And I would like to remind everybody, all our pilots out there, if you're going to go flying and you haven't been flying, because of the pandemic, to fly with somebody that's current. Your skills are perishable. You're probably nowhere near where you were when you went when the pandemic put us all on the ground. So fly with somebody that uh, has more current time than you do. And also, if you're going to go flying, do a good job of pre-planning your flight. Know what's going to happen. You know what you're going to do if something happens on takeoff. We've seen recent in the recent couple of weeks a number of people on takeoff that had engine problems and they tried to come back to the airport instead of looking for a suitable place in front of them to put the airplane down. So pre-plan your flight before you even get out to the airplane and do a thorough uh, pre-flight inspection. In fact, we, we received an email from a pilot, commercial pilot that thanked us for reminding them over and over about the, doing a, a pre-flight because he said he's now started to focus more closely on his pre-flight. Mm. So we're all we're all the same. If you you do a walk around an airplane and you never seem to find anything, when you go out there, your expectations are you're not going to find anything, and that's not the, where it should be. 
it yeah. should be a, do a very detailed inspection. So and we and we and we definitely appreciate the feedback um, from people, our listening audience via our email at flightsafetydetectives at gmail.com. We've got a, an influx of, uh, of emails in the most recent past based on the last couple of shows that John and I um, are going through right now, but we definitely appreciate the feedback. That's what helps us. And that's why we are constantly talking about pre-flight because this is the beginning of the safety issues that you need to understand. Yes, you have to have that safety mentality and that safety attitude, but it starts with a pre-flight. You catch something in a pre-flight, you don't have to use your extraordinary skills on a takeoff or in route or even on landing um, because that airplane's not gonna leave the ground and put you or your passengers in a position of jeopardy. So um, that's, it's great advice. And I know that John, that's, that is the way you end our show all the time. Um, and I think it, it is a good reminder because again, it, it forces all of us to just take a step back and rethink the issue. Yes. So with that, I'll close with please fly safely. <laughs>